on our earth before the printing press was invented, before writing was invented. Poetry flourished. That's why we know that poetry is like bread. It should be shared by all, by scholars and by peasants, by all our vast, incredible, extraordinary family of humanity. That was Pablo Neruda. I'm Bob Holman, and this is the Poetry is Bread podcast, where poetry challenges us, makes us think, and with imagination and courage, changes the world. You know, Joy Harjo is the only poet I know who could get kicked upstairs when she's leaving a two or was that three-year stint as Poet Laureate of the U.S., um, the COVID years. Yes, it was. A, it turned into three years because of COVID. Joy is the author of nine books of poetry, including the highly acclaimed at American Sunrise, several plays, children's books, two memoirs, and she's got many honors, the Ruth Lilly Prize for Lifetime Achievement from the Poetry Foundation, the Academy of American Poets Wallace Stevens Award, two NEA fellowships, Guggenheim. As a musician and performer, Harjo has produced seven award-winning music albums, including the newest, I Pray, for my enemies. Anushik joy. Anushik is the Lenape word for welcome, thank you. And of course, we, I am standing here on Lenape land uh, above the shop, the Bowery Poetry Club in Manhattan. And where are you, may I ask? I'm here in Tulsa or the, Tulsa, Oklahoma, the Muscogee Creek Nation Reservation. And uh, Muto. Is that the way you say thank you in Muscogee? Maro. Maro. Okay, uh-huh. I'm doing better. Maro. Yes. Well, thank you for being Poetry is Bread today. And I love starting with a place because that's where you seem to always be starting from, wherever it is. And as you know, you and I have, been, have met in various places around the world, mm-hmm. Nicaragua, and Hawaii. Yes, and, in, and India. India, India. Yeah, um, but I'm thinking, yeah. yeah, Calcutta for the book fair. Thank you, Ram Devanini. And uh, I was thinking about Hawaii and the word, well, it's not quite place, the word pico. You know that word? Pico in yeah, Hawaiian the... is where you stand under that the pico, and then the whole community gathers under that garland up there that garland of 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 living greens um it's also the umbilical cord and in hawaii when you when somebody asks you where are you from your parents take your umbilical cord and bury it in some place that they know is where you're from and that's where you're from i've always thought that was so beautiful um, yeah, I always say that's why I go to this one shop because it's across the street from St. John's Hospital <laughs> where I was born here in Tulsa. And I figured, well, the incinerator, they probably incinerated all those kinds of things. There was no ceremony, you know, important ceremonial recognition for those, uh, you know, the place of birth and, and even, you know, and even the place of, of transformation or the place of dying and moving on to the next place. Well, you have returned to Tulsa. You have returned to your place of birth. How does that feel? 
it's you know a lot. Some people were surprised I came back. I mean, I'm known for to be in the. I started writing poetry in the Southwest in New Mexico and lived there probably most of my life. Though I lived in Hawaii for a good period, and um, but I knew I would come back. My people are here. I'm involved very much involved with arts and cultures, with my tribal nation, and um, it made sense that I that I come back so I could be useful here you know my my you know our you know what you know it's it's it um it's my place of giving back you say you started writing poetry there what were the what was it that uh pushed you to write what poems were you did you read oh in new mexico yes i was on my way at university of new mexico and i was i i got accepted and actually got funding because I was going into pre-med. But after one semester, I was back in the art studio. And then I started hearing poetry. I met Native poets. I met Simon Ortiz. I read his poetry. Leslie Silco, who I knew as a poet before I knew her short stories and her um, before I knew her fiction. And James Welch, you know, his uh, Winter in the Blood. And, and University of New Mexico used to have a really good... Uh, writing series and I got to hear Galway Cannell, the poet I um I found uh Pablo Neruda. I mean you know, the Floricanto performances were going on. I met Ricardo Sanchez Alurista. There was just, you know, it seemed to be a there seemed to be a major there is a highway, I-40, and, and Route 66 going through there. But, you know, poetry does that. It follows, just like music. And, you know, music followed the Mississippi River and up up the Arkansas River. You know, oh, yeah. Like, like blues and jazz. Down the blues the poetry trail. Also, yeah, yeah, the poetry also follows highways. Well, I have the no, at least I read someplace that... Uh, you, when you were quite young, read uh, the, the treasury of, uh, of of poetry for children, and that's where um, you famously said that uh, poetry is singing on the page. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, I guess it's... <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yes. Next. <laughs> oh, come on! Tell me about those poems. There, they 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 pushed you too, didn't you? Because you were an artist when you were in Indian school, right? Or at least that's where you started. Yes, painter. that's that's what. Yeah, I was a painting and a drawing major, but by the second semester, I uh, I I signed up for drama class and wound up uh, one of only two high school students in a postgraduate all the rest were postgraduate students in a theater ensemble that was doing such um was getting the attention of people in new york jose lamon the dancer came out to see what we were doing because we were including dance in 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 our plays and masks and all kinds of it was really it was a very exciting time for native art period you know, in painting and sculpture, all kinds of things. And it was, um, you know, and for theater, it was the same thing. So I wound up, even though I was considered one of the shyest kids, I wound up in that in that theater group, and we went on tour with our performances. 
A poem of yours was recently published in the New Yorker, and it seems perfect for the Poetry is Bread podcast. Could you read us uh, Ordinary Morning? Yes, this is, uh, I guess it could be called an acrostic poem in the sense that I was moved to write this poem from an image. And I guess this poem, too, is sometimes, you know, I guess I go to poetry when I don't know where to put something. It's too big, too painful, too amazing. And this came from an image, and it was in the, an image in the New York Times of a, a park. It could be in anybody's neighborhood, a little park with a bench and uh, a loaf of bread with a little snow on it. But there was a pool of blood under the bench where two, a father and his daughter had been sitting, enjoying the morning, and then they were gone from uh, mortar. An Ordinary Morning We left for the park a little later than usual, my old father and I, though we knew the war was on us. Blood hunger has an endless stomach. I wanted to keep the morning from its mouth. He needed his walk to soften his joints, and we had a daily appointment with the birds. New green was peeking from the winter earth. The birds who had not scattered to the forests after the first detonations, kept to their early spring rituals. Like us, they were beginning to sing their spring songs and were making new ones. We could not let war steal everything. In the park, my old father, hobbled by an older war, by worries over the evil let loose among us, found joy in watching the children feeding the birds, and telling the stories he never tired of. And for us who loved him, well, those old stories made a circle of knowledge and affection. We bought a loaf of bread. The baker stayed on to help keep the ritual of our lives fastened into place. Our genealogies of bones are stacked in the graveyard and live in the stories we shared this morning, the baker and us. We will go on, even if there is only one standing in a sea of blood and loss, one who will tell the story of who we were and how we fought for an ordinary morning like this one, when the earth was beginning to wake from the cold season. Old Father, you tore off a piece of bread for the birds gathered at your feet. They knew to find us here, this park bench, this prayer, of blessing for the continuum of living. The fire took you first, old father. I was stunned. The sun exploded. Then I was gone, following you, the way I always did, first with my eyes, then when I learned to toddle. A bird with breadcrumbs in its beak fled to the top of the closest standing tree. My mother, your wife, was a girl again. Then you left the wedding feast as you walked hand in hand to begin a story. I was a thought in the shape of a spring flower emerging from a blood-soaked earth. How we lived and lived and lived and loved our living. We did not want to let it go. It's a beautiful poem. 
I had no idea it was based on a, on a photograph, probably of Ukraine, seems to me, yeah. Um, but what also was striking to me is that it's a poem about your, the, the eye of the poem, your father. And you've written a lot of poems about your father. Um, and yet your father left your family when you were quite young. Um, yet he seems to be still a constant in in your in your life in your in your continuity in your poetry i suppose i mean that wasn't my fault i was speaking with you know a different as you know as but as the woman in the poem and i had a very different relationship with my father though i was the person there at the end who he wouldn't let anyone take care of him he didn't get to that point but i was the one left standing with him so to speak Actually, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, well, it's a it's a lovely poem. I love it when uh, when the bread becomes something more than just nurturing for 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 you and your your papa. When it becomes something that you know, the, his first action with that loaf is to tear off a piece and give it to the birds. And the birds then continue as. Oh, I like the way that it surprised me because I was full of, I think we all, through all of this period, we've been through a lot collectively, and sometimes it gets to be too much. I think for me, that's where I go to poetry, either to read it or to, if I have a heartache, I can't bear. And, and then when you see things, you know, all over it with, you know, young men getting killed in the street for the color just because they're they have dark skin or you see these things happen and what the what do we do what can we do i mean we there's things we can do in our neighborhoods and and speaking out but sometimes the heartache is is too much to bear and when i saw that image and thought of those you know this old this old older man and his daughter sitting out on the park bench mm -hmm. and and then they were gone and it's like what kind of you know what kind of human beings are we do you think that poetry can heal this kind of pain? Well, I don't know about, I've always, you know, said, you know, I go to poetry or I'm I'm here in, in my work, whatever I do, I'm motivated by healing and by just the need for justice. And I don't, sometimes I don't know. I, I know that it, it helps, uh, that we all carry a part of the story. We all carry a part of the tale, and I guess for me, it's as a witness. And at least if there's a witness, uh, you're not alone, and you don't have to carry it by yourself. That sounds like a good job for poetry, and gives us a job as poets. Um, you, of course, are also a musician, and I say also because sometimes I think that, like Sappho sung, that the job of poet-musician is actually, can be thought of as one and the same. You, If you remember, we thought of this podcast as being a, a, a discussion of poetry and song, but I'm thinking now about the larger way of looking at it, the question of language itself, language and music. Um, and how they relate to each other. 
Um, does that have anything of happenstance for your own work? Yeah, of course. I mean, I think I'm very rhythm oriented. And just like speaking right now, I mean, there's rhythm in everything, even in the pauses and the even in the asking the questions, there's pauses, there's stresses, there's sound, you know, the, the sonic qualities of sound and so on. And when you go back to the roots of poetry, you'll always find you'll always find music and you will always find where there's music, there's dance. And so they all kind of go together. I, you know, it's in in this particular world, they've they are often appear more separate, but you know, at the root, I don't think they are. Yeah, that's right. For uh, you know, forty thousand years before the printing press, before before writing, as 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 Neruda says, there was poetry for forty thousand years there. That right um, before we before. tend to write off because now we've got this wonderful thing called the book, which also seems to be maybe a thing of the past now but yes the little melodies that float in listening to you when you quote read your poems because i wouldn't call them performing but the idea that you're reading them there's not true either sometimes you break into melody in in your um, in your what called recitation in your reading of the poem um what what pushes you in in that direction well I don't know. It's like the, an ordinary morning. I'm going to, it is, I'm working on a song version. I think the poem, the lines and 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 the, the uh, phrasing in it lends itself very, it will lend itself very much to a, to a song and, and make a chorus. I was trying to think of how it would make the chorus. What do you think the chorus might be? The hook. Yeah, the hook. Oh, man. Let's see. The thing I think that might be that would probably lend itself best is we will go on even if there is only one standing in a sea of blood or loss. One who will tell the story of who we were. One who will tell the story. That's 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 what you and and, and I'm still thinking of that bird, that sparrow flying off with that piece of bread as if it were you know some kind of coded message for some bird that's going to read it over there and tell it to those peace-loving people on the other side of the mountain yeah that surprised me in the poem i didn't say sparrow but i was thinking well it could be you know the little bird and what a difference it makes if, if between if you had a, a crow or a pterodactyl or a pterodactyl or what kind of bird totally shifts the poem so um, I'm, I'm now I'm thinking about the Had It Up to Here Round Dance, which is uh, to, which one of my favorite songs of yours. That's how I learned it first, was hearing it on your Native Joy for Real, which was an album that changed my life. Um, did that start off as a poem? Because there's such a spoken piece in the in the uh, in the song. No, it didn't. It it I wrote that as a song, and if I were to do it again, I'd be playing. I don't think I'm playing sax in it, and I'd be blowing a lot of sax through there and doing, you know, improvising and doing stuff. And 
And no, it started out, I knew I was going to bring Charlie Hill, and we miss Charlie. Oneida comedian, He, uh, Richard Pryor opened the door for him, and uh, he became a good friend of mine. And so I, I was living in L.A. then, and I thought, I'm going to bring Charlie, and I'm going to do something. I had an idea for a song that would start out one way, an argument, and, and turn into a really good dance tune. And so I had... I had some of it was a very small part. Some of it was scripted. And then the two of us totally went off. And it turned into what it turned into. And uh, I love how I love how that happened. Although I had a very good friend in the industry, I guess, who loved the album until he got to that song. And he was so upset. He said, how this doesn't fit with everything else. And how can you put that in there? He's not singing in tune, you know. You know, he you know, I didn't auto-tune him or anything, and that's not what it was about. It was like some, you know, a guy and a girl. Usually these round dance songs are one voice. There's one voice and usually male, usually a male voice, you know, singing and telling their part of the story, like where did she go? You know, I'm da 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 da, you know, um, you know, the 49 songs, you know, I don't care if you're married 16 times, I'll get you yet, da-da-da, you know, there's all kinds of songs, and so I thought, well, I'm going to make two voices, this was, I went in with this idea, I'm going to make two voices, a male and a female, and have it, you know, erupt, and I'm not sure exactly where it's going to go, and then it turned into, um, and then it would go into this dance thing, this kind of fun dance thing, groove, and then end. And I wasn't sure how it was going to end. And that's how it happened. We went in the studio and just had fun. <laughs> yeah, and the way that it has that, the, you know, the round dance, uh, native, the drumming, and the, and the way it explodes with with uh, with other melodies. It's just an amazing piece. What do you say we take a, a little break, you and me, and we can actually hear the Had It Up To Here round dance. Just not fair. 
how can I tell you that I love you when I don't you don't like even care? Boyfriend and his white man ways. You hold him in your shawl, it makes me crazed. I like the way you step so high beside me. But how can I tell you, babe, you don't talk to me? Are you done? Jeez. Too much. Went out for a couple of drinks and party. A couple of smokes. Not enough. Didn't mean anything. Rent. I mean, I mean. Not enough. I woke up on the floor with her. Uptime. Too arms much. Arms around her, but she. Downtime. Too much. Passed out, and I was just trying Downtown. to see if she was still breathing. But Run around. You, know, you read things into it. Man. So, Joy, you said that you wanted to play some saxophone on that tune. Um, I love your saxophone. Um, as a matter of fact, I remember when we were coming back from the Calcutta airport 
and we were reading the signs on the back of the trucks that said, please honk. Now, only in India do they say, please. It's as if you're driving by the sense of sound, you know, get out of my way or here I come. I'm passing you now. Thank you very much. Goodbye. And then you pulled out your black saxophone and started to play to the traffic. True story. Yeah, it said something about, I photographed those. It said, honk your horn or something like that. Yeah, I brought my horn there. And there was a moment there, too, when we went to visit a village outside Shantanikatan where, um, and a lot of village, you know, native villages are like this, is they send out a welcoming group, and then you have to respond in turn, usually musically. And, and I remember Gautam pushing me forward, made me get my saxophone out, and pushed me forward with the saxophone to play, and they had never heard anything quite like that. Oh, that's a beautiful And I just story. played. <laughs> the great uh, Baal poets, the street poets of that part of India. Um, but l l you weren't, didn't grow up playing the saxophone. How? What's, give us that part of the story. Yes, when I, I've always loved music. And when I was growing up and we were with my father, uh, Tulsa is known as, it was known as a big center of country swing music town you know leon russell came from here um i'm i'm a block away from kane's ballroom one of the major dance music bars that's still open and we used to have a lot of those musicians at our house because of my mother wrote songs and and uh, and would go you know make demos with go make demos trying to get her music out there and so I, I came to poetry really because of lyrics and music and, and, and then poetry, the poetry my mother would recite. And it was, I, we had band in school and I played clarinet for a couple of years. It was, you know, once a week we'd go into the band room and play. I didn't have lessons. I always wanted to learn to play piano, but we couldn't afford a piano. It used to really bug me because I think, here we have a piano teacher right across the street, but we don't have a piano. And uh, But then when uh, I went to junior high and I was in band that first semester and, and the band teacher wouldn't let, he said, we need uh, some alto sax players and he wouldn't let the girls play a sax. Oh. So I wound up quitting band and then my stepfather, when my stepfather came along, there was no music. Yeah, the house would go silent when he came back. And uh, we... Um, when did you start playing the sax? I didn't start playing. So I walked away from music, period. And I picked up a sax. I was almost 40. Oh, wow. And started, I laid out the blue, G blue scale. You know, I came, you know, our Tulsa schools way back. We had an arts curriculum. So I learned how to read music. And now I can I can read and I can sight read, but I mostly play by you know I just listen and play things and I love to improvise. And but yeah, I started when I was almost forty. I have a wonderful friend mentor from Italy who uh, who's been a great champion of my poetry. And I remember when I started playing sax, and she says, "No, you're going to ruin your gift. You're here as a poet." You know, and I'm sure a lot of poetry, you know, there's, you know, there's an attitude in, in, in the highest echelons of poetry that saxophones don't belong 
in the hall of poetry, (laughs) (laughs) you know, you know, and nor do they belong for the most part in, in the, you know, in the higher echelons of what, you know, of like classical music and, but I love the voice. It's the closest thing I can get. Like I, I did a show the other night here. I, we, I had a great band. We, I just had a blast. I didn't want to stop playing. And it's like the voice. I realize that the voice is very is close to the sound of my speaking singing. I'm trying to get my singing voice there. It's getting there, but it's got that the same. There's a sound quality to it. The timbre. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you you said that your mother wrote lyrics. Um, what kind of lyrics did she write? Heartache ballad. Oh, wow. That kind of thing. Yeah. Very, very big, very poignant. You know, do you remember any of them by any chance? <sighs> She did one called, I was, I, I get it confused. There's a weeping willow, weeping willow tree. She loved, um, oh, what is his name? Cole, Nat King Cole. Nat King Cole. Oh. Yeah, those kind of, those kind of lyrics, you know, this kind of heartbreaky, just crooning lyrics. Yeah. Did but you I don't know, have uh, any I I yeah. I want to go over and dig through my my sister has all my mom's stuff over s- somewhere over there where she okay. lives and I would love to go dig around and I asked her the other day if she had if she knew whether she had any of my mom's old demos. Uh, wow, that would be something to hear. It would be. To sample some of that, huh? Yeah, it would yeah, be. Yeah, yeah. What's the difference between writing a uh, a song lyric and writing a poem? Yeah, there is there is a difference. If it's a song lyric, I the melody is you know usually helps carry it along, and you're working with you know certain kinds of meter or forms, or you make your own. I tend to make my own forms, which can be a little frustrating if you're always working in fours and eights. Um, but if it's writing a poem, I don't know, I go about it differently, although a lot, many of my poems wind up as songs, like I think An Ordinary Morning will wind up as song. A new poem of mine without, I want to make it into a song. Um, and then sometimes I just sit and, you know, I will write a song, you know, write something as a song. I have a poem, I published it, sometimes when I publish poems, I'll put in parentheses song. I have a song on my album, I Pray for My Enemies, that I wrote as a song called How Love Blows Through the Trees. And I, I, I submitted it for an anthology, a literary anthology on, um, on COVID, you know, and, and, and the, you know, those year, that year of, of being inside. And I knew they wouldn't, weren't, wouldn't take it. I said, I'm sending you this. But knowing what I know, you know, it's too song-like. It's not, it, it doesn't count as a poem. And well, I was can, right. It You know, it yeah, didn't, it didn't yeah. bother me. It wasn't accepted. It didn't fit into, it didn't fit into, you know, a literary poetry anthology. Well, but then, you know, we can always argue about uh, the uh, literature Nobel going to Bob Dylan, which I know you think is a, a perfect choice, 
even if you weren't working for the uh, center, but uh, and which I agree with, you know. But uh, yeah, you'll find that element of poetry where Bob Dylan is not a poet, but a songwriter. Yeah, and I again, it goes back to the roots. It goes really back to the roots and how things, how it got separated, and and why, perhaps, which is another story. Yeah, well, it's the old commercial story. Maybe we could have a commercial here, as a matter of fact. Uh, if a poem could be a commercial, you mentioned that Without is another poem that you're thinking of uh, morphing, transforming, and yeah. transcending into a poem. Have you got that handy? Could you read that for us? Yes, this is called Without. The world will keep trudging through time without us when we lift from the story contest to fly home. We will be as falling stars to those watching from the edge of grief and heartbreak. Maybe then we will see the design of the two-minded creature and know why half the world fights righteously for greedy masters and the other half is nailing it all back together through the smoke of cooking fires, lovers' trysts, and endless human industry. Maybe then, beloved rascal, we will find each other again in the timeless weave of breathing. We will sit under the trees in the shadow of earth's sorrows, watch hyenas drink rain, and laugh. Wow. Great poem. Watch uh, hyenas. Watch hyenas drink rain is one of the great images of our time, um, but I just can't see how that could become a a a, a, a song. Where where do you see the you know where's the rhythm? It sounds a little prosaic even at times. Where's the rhythm in in there, Joy? I would find it. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I know you will. No, I, I could will. find it. Yeah. That's a great. It's almost poem. like a three-four. Oh, a little waltzy. Yeah, it's almost like a three-four. The world will keep trudging through time without us. When we lift from the story contest to fly home, we will be as falling stars to those watching from the edge of grief and heartbreak. You see how it would work in like three. Wow. Well, I I didn't see or hear. How it could be four, but now that we've heard actually the magic, folks, you've heard the magic here of how that poem can become a, a song. Um, I'm thinking about uh, Sherwin Bitsui and his uh, use of Navajo, the way that he drips his words across the, the pages in his, his great book, Flood Song. Um, you're a painter, but uh, have you ever been tempted to work the typography of the of the of, of the page into a more painterly or musical? You know, those words just drip for for sure when he spaces them across the page, and you only see this one word "t o," which in "to uh, twa." I love that. I love that poem of his, and I'm I'm familiar <laughs> with that language. But you know, when I went to the University of New Mexico, and I was very involved with native rights movements, and then I got permission to substitute Navajo 
for uh, my foreign language requirement instead of French. And, and so, you know, I was studying Navajo when I was beginning to write poetry, and I think there, there's a connection there. And uh, so, and I'm familiar with those lands. And so, I'd, so when I read Sherwin Bitsui, I can see I'm immediately taken to place. And, and in a desert, in the desert, water, I mean, water is primary. So to have twa, 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 twa dripping down the page in a way becomes more than just words on a page, but it also becomes uh, it almost like a prayer for rain at the same time in a desert landscape. Um. I love I love that. I think I I think I that's the one I I uh, we chose. Not just me. We had a whole team of editors for when the light of the world was subdued. Our songs came through. Right, um, which is the Norton anthology of what? How do you call it? The uh, um, uh, Native Nations poetry of Native Nations. You know, I mean, yeah. it's just remarkable that that book exists, and it's such a fantastic anthology. Go get it right now. And uh, but uh, it's it's you know the nomenclature is so uh, convoluted these days. You know, there's the Native Nations poetry, and there is uh, indigenous, and there is Native American, and there's even the word Indians, which is the word that uh, Jim Northrup, the great uh, Anishinaabe Ojibwe uh, poet and storyteller, would tell me, Bob, you have to say Indian, because that's what we are. We're Indians. And if you want, I'll take you to the uh, casino and show you which of the of the slot machines is the Indian slot machine that really pays off, you know? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like him. Well, he's my generation. Or a little bit, he's a little older. He was a little older than me, probably about 10 years. And wonderful poet and storyteller, Miss a really him. good storyteller. And, and yeah. yeah, I do too. And and we call her, it's in, we grew up with Indians. Indians. Yeah. And then with, you know, our tribal nations, we call each other by that. And then it was Native Americans is a term that it always irritates me because it came right out of mm. academia. Yeah. And I saw the whole the whole term emerge out of academia and now it's you know, it's used widely used and but generally we go with our own tribal nations the names of our own tribal nations tribal nations is the way to go with that yeah yeah okay that's yeah. that's a good that's a good note folks if you're if you are listening and yeah i hope that you are let's talk about native languages now it just seems there is you know like with uh natalie diaz and her work on the mojave dictionary there's a a strong movement to uh um reinvigorate is that the right word i don't know but to you know take the the indian languages that have managed to survive through genocide uh and the horrors um till now and and treat them that's funny to me that you said that you learn navajo as a foreign language come on what is that <laughs> a little irony in there <laughs> yeah isn't that you know? funny yeah, but you, a lot, yeah, yeah, a little. You work with the Muscogee language. You, you put it in your books and in your songs. What do you think about is the uh, 
endangered language movement towards uh, uh, in the in the in the Indian sphere. Well, I think that's you know we're all moving towards that because you come to the when you're in the culture, and then in the language you realize that that's where you know so much is carried there. Just like you know poetry carries a lot of. You could probably take almost any poem, and and it would be a mirror of even a, of a sliver of history of what's going on. And languages, too, you know, languages are like that. That's how we, um, you know, why things mean, how things mean. It's all there. It's all there in our in our languages, and it's really languages really help define us as human beings. And so that's, I think it's, go, you know, everywhere. I know that, you know, our tribal nation and others are working towards, you know, a lot of, several of us thinking about a cultural and art school, arts and culture schools with language as, you know, necessary and primary in, you know, in what, what would be, what's a Muscogee Creek education? A language would be central. Right uh, to, you know, if it's it, it needs to be spoken at home, as we learned in Hawaii with the Pananaleo. It needs, you know, it needs to be spoken at school, and and uh, and you know, you need to hear that. If you hear, because kids are the greatest language learners of it all. They don't learn them; they just somehow are speaking them. You know, and no mm -hmm. matter how many languages you seem to throw at them, they're always. Speak. This is mommy's language. This is daddy's language, and it doesn't. You know, this is just the way you talk to people. So, you think that uh, there's going to be a, this is a way to preserve culture and way to m make it move forward. Yeah, I th definitely. Yeah, I think so. I mean, and, and diversity, whether it's diversity of plant life, diversity of, of language, of word choice, all of that goes into making a, you know, a rich experience of living. Well, did you, did you when you got married, uh, did you take on some uh, grandkids? How many grandkids do you got running around? I, I don't know anymore because I have... I have seven by blood. I have seven grandchildren and two great grandchildren through blood. But I have, um, I've had six, seven, nine that I've had for a long time of grandchildren through other associate, you know, through associations. And then when I got married, he has five children. There are I have, you know, and then many other grandchildren and great grandchildren. And we just they keep adding. We keep adding them. And so I've become a matriarch of a very large family. And so I, people are always asking me for blurbs and this, that, and the other. And I had to cut it off somewhere. It's like, um, I can't do everything. <laughs> you know? Grandchildren are a great excuse you know, for uh, not writing blurbs. Now I understand it. I was thought I was doing pretty yeah, good with five right. grandchildren <laughs> who all are waiting to hear you uh, uh, to to read remember and to hear you maybe you can give them a taste of what remember sounds like now okay i will read it and and i also i don't have it right here i've had it translated into muskogee and when uh for the final event of the us poet laureate event in uh, dc the last thing was um uh, 
well, one, I had a young Muskogee poet come up, um, uh, Sterling Harjo's daughter, Portland Houghton Harjo, read a new poem. She read a wonderful new poem she wrote, and she's going to school in New York at Pratt, I think. And then I closed with a, a singer friend of mine, Jennifer Kreisberg, and we sang, did the song Remember in Muskogee language and in English. And anyway, here it is in English. Remember, remember the sky you were born under. Know each of the stars' stories. Remember the moon, know who she is. Remember the sun's birth at dawn, that is the strongest point of time. Remember sundown and the giving away tonight. Remember your birth, how your mother struggled to give you form and breath. You are evidence of her life and her mother's and hers. Remember your father, he is your life also. Remember the earth whose skin you are, red earth, black earth, yellow earth, white earth, brown earth, we are earth. Remember the plants, trees, animal life who all have their tribes, their families, their histories too. Talk to them. Listen to them. They are alive poems. Remember the wind. Remember her voice. She knows the origin of this universe. Remember you are all people and all people are you. Remember, you are this universe, and this universe is you. Remember, all is in motion, is growing, is you. Remember, language comes from this. Remember, the dance languages that life is. Remember. Wow. Poet's job. And you do it so well. You did it so well when you were uh, our poet laureate. Um, let's go back to that. We didn't really talk about the the map and other things that you did did you feel that your years as poet laureate were you know effective and did you get your projects done that you wanted to well it's funny you go into it and and as i was told by by my boss there rob <laughs> rob casper you know it's like every poet laureate makes the job their own i mean it, it they they you know every we're all different and everybody comes into it and I came into it at a very kind of interesting time politically, and I um, I remember when I was I was in I was at the University of New Mexico. I was painting and starting to write poetry, and um, involved in different political actions for for human rights, especially with Native people. And I thought, I said to myself, if I do anything in my life, by then I get to the end of my life, I want. Native people to be seen as human beings. And the poet laureateship, I think, went a long way towards that. Because here, you have to be a human being to be a poet. And it opened a door in a profound way, in a way that I never would have imagined, I think. And so that was important. And so the U.S., the Poet Laureate Project was part of that, was a way for people to see that Wait, there's not just one poet. There's not just one native poet, but there are many native poets. And um, so I decided to do this. Uh, I met with a lot of the departments within the Library of Congress. I wanted to see who was there and what was going on there. And they were wonderful and very generous with their time. And I always loved maps. So we settled on a um, map of contemporary native poets. And we wound up with 47. We could have had hundreds. But their, you know, capacity. <laughs> it took a lot of extra time, you know, for for the maps people and and the 
poetry and literature staff, but we uh, put together a, a digital map that showcased 47 poets, which also uh, showcased 47 places in the country. And, and out of that, we also have a collection now in the Library of Congress of 47 Native poets speaking about place and reading poetry. Wonderful. But one of the remarks, you know, 47 poets in 50 states is generally the way we would think of that. And yet what you've done in your map is to have it be boundaryless, like I mentioned earlier. There aren't any states there. How did you come to make, uh, to make that decision, to use geographic markers rather than uh, political ones? Because we were here long before... The United States was the United States. We were here long before the division of, you know, state borders. <laughs> we were here, you know, we know ourselves to be part of these lands, the waters, the, the, these mountains, and, and this place. So now you are the first artist in residence at the Bob Dylan Center. What's it like? Yeah, well, you know, that's, I've, I've been, I helped with the opening and it's really cool to have that center. And I think, you know, when that center was put up, I guess it was very important to those who, you know, help conceptualize and put the center together that creativity um, be emphasized, you know, that we're all creative beings and, and, and kind of give them a sense about what goes into making a song and how people make songs and record songs. And so... So my position, again, it's what I make it. You know, we want to highlight, highlight other musicians, musician poets, and um, interface to a lot of interfacing with the, with the community. I was locally and even nationally. So it's pretty much the position has just pretty much started. The uh, center opened in early May and has had quite a number of people go through there. It's become... Um, I guess, a location for visitors to the Tulsa area. So thanks very much, Joy Harjo. This has been an episode of Poetry is Bread, a podcast that just keeps rising. Enjoy it. See you. I'm Bob Holman, and thank you for listening to Poetry is Bread. Subscribe to our podcast to get notifications of new episodes, or check us out at BoweryPoetry.com. The podcast is co-produced by Ram Devanini and Flavia Roja with Rataplax. The podcast series is funded by the Citizen Diplomacy Action Fund, which is sponsored by the U.S. Department of State with fundings provided by the U.S. government and implemented by Global Ties U.S. in partnership with the Office of Alumni Affairs and the Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs. Additional support from New York State Council on the Arts, Governor New York State Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. See ya.